Okay, so my presentation today is going to be really about God's grace and, and hand to ha how to handle life's adversities. And so I framed it around the seasons of life. Now, it's interesting if we talk about the seasons of life, we have four. But right now, if you live in Minnesota, you believe there's only one season. And I want you all to know, because we're going to get about 13 to 15 inches of snow over the next week, that they arrested the groundhog from Pennsylvania for lying. So he is behind bars now. So very excited about that. So the first season I'd like to talk about is spring. And I love spring. And maybe we'll get it and maybe we won't. It's not a guarantee here in this state. But one of the things I love about spring is the vibrant green that starts to grow, the new growth that we see that comes a result of having spring. And following spring comes our longest periods of growth. We have peak growth during the summer, and we have the most daylight in the summer, and we just thrive. And if you think of us as thriving, think of us as framing our own seasons of life, of periods of time in our life, not framed by three or four months, but maybe framed by two weeks, two years, two decades. And so as I think of summer, you have to realize that you have an opportunity to grow like never before and to utilize the energy that comes from our sun. And following the summer becomes one of my favorite seasons, and that's the autumn, the fall. And that's where we have the most vibrant colors. But the vibrant colors are really indicators of death which is amazing. We have our most beautiful season when things are actually dying. So what happens is we reap the rewards of our growth from the autumn, from the summer, and it's, it's glorified. And then following autumn, I don't have to tell you, winter comes. And within winter is, if we have peak growth, we have to have some downtime, and then comes the downtime in winter where we need restoration. We cannot continue our lives at full throttle every day and every day of our, our lives. So I want to talk a little bit about adversity. Adversity is relative to one's previous experiences. And I, I want to just give you a couple of examples. Oh, my pointer's not working now. But at the top, you see, didn't mean to do that either. Okay, so at the top, you see kids in stockings. And then a baggie of snacks. My daughter came out of second grade one year. I was standing out for, waiting for her at the elementary school. And the first comment I always make is, well, Sarah, how was your day? And she stated right away, it was the worst day of my life. And I thought, well, this is going to be good coming from a second grader. So in my sympathetic mode, I said, well, what on earth happened? And she immediately responded, you forgot to pat me a snack today. And I thought, Okay, tragic. Um, but again, my response to her in a sympathetic manner, well, what did you do? Well, I went to the teacher and said I didn't have a snack, and she provided me with one. I thought, great, my daughter's got survival skills. So then I said, well, what was the other thing? Well, you forgot to pack my gym shoes. It must have been a really rushed morning or something for me to lose, you know, what all my daughter was supposed to have in her backpack that day. And she says, you forgot to pack my gym shoes. And I said, so what did you do? Oh, the gym teacher let me participate in gym in my, stock, in my socks. And I thought, again, survivalist. She wasn't pouting, crying. She just managed to do with what she had. That was adversity for a second grader. Okay? Now a little more adversity. 
This happened to me in, in uh, December. Now, you're not going to feel bad for me because of the circumstances. But we went to Hawaii over Christmas break. And I lost my $500 sunglasses, prescription sunglasses, that are now in the Pacific Ocean. And the only way I could deal with that was the humor of some turtle is sporting some really nice sunglasses right now. And, and he's the talk of the town. Well, the reality is, that's a little bit of adversity, but really in the scheme of life, is it? On the bottom picture there, you will see a picture that was taken two days ago from Alabama, where 23 people have died from a tornado. That tells you that adversity is non-discriminant. It happens to all of us. We have to live a life prepared to have things not go our way. And that's the marvel in, in knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is that if you put that trust in Christ, you always have an out for your adversity. Well, from a study at the University of Virginia, they realized that people have done with, with homicides in their families, the things that were most relative to them overcoming it were two things, their sense of humor and their faith. And this is from a state school that doesn't like to talk about faith, but it was a result of one of the studies that came out of there. And then the downside of not overcoming adversity is this inability to come to a conclusion and you end up with anger. And that's the undertow of your life. You're always angry at something because you have never resolved the adversity. And then lastly is uh, the blame. And that's our default mechanism. When we find failure in something, we just want to blame people. We've come to understand at Crown that when you have problems, your default mechanism is that I won't deal with it. It will just go away. Well, that's not how problems get solved. You know, you have a bad grade. It grade just doesn't go away. You have to do something to work harder to improve that grade. And so blame is our default mechanism. And then lastly, um, overcoming adversity is a personal choice. So I'm going to tell you a story here, but first I'm going to frame it by the use of the word love. And this is, there's a book on depression, and there's just a couple things I, I want to read to you. Depression is the flaw in love. To be creatures who love, we must be creatures who can despair what we lose. And depression is the mechanism of that despair. When it comes, it degrades oneself and ultimately eclipses the capacity to receive, to give or receive affection. It is the aloneness within us that manifests and it, it destroys not only connection to others, but the ability to be peaceful and alone with oneself. If we're without love, we don't have the ability to connect to others. Lastly, I'll read the last paragraph. Love forsakes us from time to time and we forsake love. In depression, the meaninglessness of every enterprise that is, and every emotion, that meaninglessness of life itself becomes self-evident. The only thing left, the only feeling left in this loveless state is insignificance. And the last thing you want to ever do is wake up feeling insignificant. So love is what keeps us from feeling insignificant. So a little story here. This is a, a post-World War II family. And again, just a family portrait. And then you take that family just nine years later, so there's four kids in this picture. And then the next picture is the last family photo taken of this group. And there are six kids, and this is a very celebra big celebration of a wedding, the oldest son getting married. And the reason this is the last photograph of this family is because the mom was brutally murdered 
in December of that very year. And you can't see all of this on here, but it talks about the weapon of choice was an axe. The mother was axed to death and what the Petersburg Police Department described as being the most brutal murder they had ever seen. Well, understanding this, if you go back to this family portrait, the only kids that were in that house that night were the four youngest ones. The older two were already, one was married and one was in college. And when what happened was one of the, the two oldest kids that were in that home that night described this is what happened. So they were asleep in their beds. This is the middle of the night, and all of a sudden the doorbell rings. And the one, you know, here's the conversation at the door. Their mom is talking to somebody at the door. And the man says, your husband has been in a car accident. And the mother immediately responds, well, why didn't you call? The next thing, the second of the um, youngest that were at home that day, the one in the blue, she says she heard her mom scream. And so she jumped out of her bed to go help her mom. She races to the hallway and sees her mom being chased by a man who was brutally beating her mom. She froze in her tracks and her older sister in the bedroom said, come back to bed. So she went back to bed feeling somewhat like a coward because she should go help her mom. And she was in the bed thinking, maybe I should climb out the window. But really in this instance, this is that type of fear that you've never heard before. The fear that you're paralyzed, you can't think, you can't move, you can't speak. And what the little girl experienced over the next few hours was she heard her mom's screams diminish to silence. She heard the beating stop. There was a man in their house who was cleaning himself off in their bathroom. And this again went on until the dad came into the bedroom with the police officer and the little girl jumped out of the bed and said, has that man left yet? And now the police officers know they have an eyewitness. So all of the kids were taken over to the in-laws house and waited for the older two siblings to come home. And once they were home, their dad said to them, God has taken your mom home to be with him. And that nine-year-old girl who witnessed the murder very much hated God, didn't understand why God could possibly need her mom more than she did. Then, like every crime scene, samples are taken to an FBI lab, hair samples, blood stains, fingerprints. And what was interesting is the girl had the description perfectly of who killed her mom, a very tall white male. Well, what happened is they were having no leads in this case. So they took that nine-year-old, and in February of that year, which she was now 10, the detectives from the Petersburg Police Department came to question her. She had been moved with her, four, her three other siblings to Iowa to live with an aunt and uncle. And during that time of questioning, they had her in the hotel room for over six hours, asking her question after question about the night of the murder. Her story never wavered. Towards the end of the six hours, the police detective said, do you love your dad? Remember, I've already talked about love. And she said, yes, I love my dad. He said, did you know he's going to marry another lady? She said, no. And at that point, what does that mean? Her mom has already passed. And then they asked her again, do you love your dad? And she responds, yes. Then the big question comes, did you know your dad is a sick man? And the 10-year-old didn't know that. And she said, no. And they said, if 
we could help your dad, would you like us to do that? And she said, yes. And the police detectives then said, if you just tell us that your dad killed your mom, we will find help for him. At 10 years old, the little girl looked at the detectives and her aunt who was in this hotel room and said, my dad killed my mom. I was the nine-year-old, the 10-year-old who witnessed the murder of my mom. I was coerced by people I was supposed to trust and get them to find the right conclusion about who killed my mom. I was coerced into lying. And I did lie. I lied in the court of law. My dad was immediately arrested after I gave that statement. And one of the police detectives said they would have never arrested my dad had I not made that statement. And that's been articulated. My dad, in fact, admits he was having an affair. And his only alibi was one of his mistresses. And so what happens is now we go to trial. You've got corroborated testimony from myself, which is a lie. You've got stains, blood, hair from the FBI lab that have now gone missing. And you've got my dad's only alibi who attempted suicide the night she was to testify. So now we have a case. And as I testified, I told them about my mother being beaten, being chased by my dad. And then they asked, my dad's defense asked for a psychiatrist to come interview me and then present that information in the trial. The judge denied it. The psychiatrist was the psychiatrist that was on trial for the Boston murder strangler, or the Boston Strangler's murder, and the son of Sam. So a very high profile psychiatrist was denied access to me. Then they put the death penalty on the table for my dad. Can you imagine the guilt today I would have if my dad had been put to death for a crime he never committed? Well, fortunately, God's grace, they convicted him of second-degree murder. That doesn't even match the crime. So I can tell you how um, convoluted this case was that they even come up with a verdict that doesn't match the crime. So my dad was sentenced to 20 years in prison for a crime he never committed. He says his only resolve with it is that he was committed of adultery, not of murder. My dad was then paroled after seven years of a 20-year sentence. And that year, I was a junior in high school. And he hired a private detective to come out and question me, because my dad always maintained his innocence. That private detective came out, and for the first time since the trial, I told the truth. And it was such a relief for me. Now remember, my relationship with God was bad, because I really didn't love God. And I'd put, been put in an environment where church was cold and dark. So I had lived these lives without love, without love from parents that weren't around, without love from a God who truly shows us what love is all about. My dad continued to pursue, and I started to help him pursue his innocence. And one of the things I revealed is that the killer of my mom was left-handed. I'm left-handed. We just eliminated 90% of the population, including my dad as being the perpetrator of this crime. My dad and I had a great relationship. He has since passed. And I still chase this to the very end where I found a DNA attorney who in these times can overturn cases even if the person is deceased. 
this DNA attorney I, I retained out of uh, Chicago, and she hired a private investigator. And just to read you a couple of things from this, I've been involved in several high-profile cases involving the police running roughshed over the evidence in search of a conviction rather than in search for truth. This appears to be the situation here. It seems to me that although circumstances beyond your control may never allow you to prove scientifically that your father was innocent, it is still obvious. In fact, according to Mr. Long, years ago, the Petersburg police virtually admitted to him that they had a wrong conviction in this case. I think that the fact that they assigned a police detective to work with him speaks volumes. The police officers that also inter interrogated you were reprimanded to the point of early retirement. At this time, we were closing our file on this case. I regret that we were unable to find physical evidence or even a way to gather physical evidence to bring this case to a proper conclusion. I hope that you find some comfort in knowing that you did all you could do to get to the truth, but through no, fa no fault of your own, it appears to be out of our grasp. The files on my mom's case disappeared. There is no physical evidence remaining. At the end of the day, I have to wake up and agree I did all I could possibly do to try and show that my dad was not the murderer of my mom. This past December was the 50th anniversary of my mom's death, and I wrote an editorial to the Progress Index, the newspaper of Petersburg, Virginia, and basically told them the police department needs to work harder to get things wrong, because when they get, or to get things right, when they get things wrong, it affects people's lives. And in this pursuit, I also found a picture of the man who killed my mom. That's the man in this picture doesn't look anything like my dad. He's so much taller than my dad. So when O.J. Simpson uh, killed his wife, they had an article and it was basically, the Simpson ch children face a horrific double loss. To have your own father charged with the death of your mother shatters a child's faith in the world. And that's how my faith was. It was absolutely shattered. There was nobody I could trust. I didn't have God. Well, fast forward. God provided me with people that had been praying for me, even though I didn't know who they were. The minute my mom died, people prayed for me and prayed for me for years, even though I rejected God. I also was blessed. God gave me abilities in both music, academics, athletics. And I was able to pursue those things. And that is from the grace of people praying for me and keeping me out of trouble and not becoming angry and hate the world. I had success in music. I had success in college sports. So much to the fact that I had an opportunity to run on a relay team that set a world record. But again, backstep just a bit. My freshman year in college, my first release out of living in a home that was not full of love, I won the 10,000 meters at a state intercollegiate meet, beating runners from Iowa, Iowa State. It was a big deal and something freshmen should never win. And we were coming back on the bus that night, and all I could think about is there is more to life than winning. I had won many awards, but there was more to life. I had no satisfaction of physical awards. So we got back late that night, and I called an athletic trainer. The only reason I knew her is because I had severely sprained my ankle in the fall, and I had to rehab it. 
And this person is somebody that just lived a life that was representative of what God wants us to live. So I called her down to my room, and we talked about a lot of things. She thought I was hurt, and I was like, no, I'm not hurt. And then finally she said, why did you call me down to your room? I said, because you have something that I don't have, and I want it, and I need to know what it is. And it was Jesus Christ. This was an ordinary person who just let Christ live through her and represented Christ in his glory. I was one of the easiest conversions of all time because that night I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And for the first time, I felt forgiven for lying in the court of law that put my dad in prison. I had an opportunity to run on a relay team that set a world record, and the goal of that relay team was then to shatter it the following year so we'd never have to do it again. And so I formulated a team of 10 great female runners. And then I realized I need to have an alternate because what if somebody gets hurt prior to? Once you start the relay, you can't add any people. If somebody drops out, which they always do, you have to go with fewer numbers, more reps. And so at this time, I decided to ask the athlete to the uh, left of me or to the right of me in that picture if she would be my alternate for that relay. And she begrudgingly said, yes, I'll do it as long as I don't have to do it. I said, perfect, you're just who we want. So she was our alternate. Well, following that race I told you that I ran, then the following week I qualified for the Mid-American National uh, Track Meet. And because of that, and because of me being a fifth-year senior, track decided to give me a full-ride scholarship. My coach gave me a full-ride scholarship for the following year. I signed that scholarship on a Wednesday. On that Wednesday, I was so excited, I went out and ran afterwards. Of course I did. And so on that run, a car backed up without looking and ended my collegiate career in that given moment. And I remember laying on the pavement, hearing the ambulance come, even dazed, and thinking about those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I was in a place spiritually to face adversity and embrace it and say, God has a plan for me. Do you know how important it is to live your life, one, of preparing yourself for adversity so when adversity hits, you can strike right back at it and say, not this time. You're not going to break me this time. That particular accident kept me from traveling with the team in the fall. Because I was a scholarship athlete, generally I traveled with our cross-country team to compete. I called the coach the night before of a meet and said, do you mind if I stay home because I have a lot of studying to do? And she was fine with that. That morning I received a phone call at 6.45 a.m. to tell me that my team had been in an accident. A truck ran a stop sign and killed my friend who substituted for me on that relay. I did not question my injury ever again. I was supposed to be an All-American in the following fall. And yet that injury kept me from being in a van that killed my replacement. We don't always get the answers to why things happen. But at that point, God gave me the answer. 
And I fought back, and I ended up having a decent running career, not in college after that. But the point is, I was set up very well for adversity. God had given me people that had discipled me, who prepared me to face life with God and with God alone. Not all of you have ever been in a position where you didn't have love around you, you didn't have support around you, and you, you never had to rely on God. But I look at how God protected me through my darkest days, trying to prove my dad's innocence, the defeat that came with that, and shielding me with prayer from people that were prayerful. So if you ever think twice about praying for somebody, know that I am a product of chronic habitual prayer. Again, having success, what does that mean? The two people that are shouldering me in the middle picture, Chris Wallace, a college teammate. I was running with her in practice one year during a cross-country season, and she and I got to the top of a hill, and I was talking about my faith in Christ, and she says to me at the top of that hill, I want the same Christ that you have. We prayed during that run on top of a hill for Chris to receive Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. The man to the right is another gentleman I had the opportunity to lead to Christ. And so when we talk about accomplishments, my accomplishments as a runner, as a musician, in academics are meaninglessness. That these are the people that I have had the ability to share Christ with and their lives have been forever altered. Another gentleman, Grant Wheeler, very good friend. I had a tremendous ministry, high school ministry in Cedar Falls, Iowa, where I worked with athletes, my own ministry similar to FCA, and in that ministry, I had the opportunity to share Christ with many high school kids. One of them was Grant Wheeler, who he and I went to a restaurant, and we talked through his faith, and at that moment, in that restaurant, we pray, I prayed with him to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Grant was an amazing man of God, raised two beautiful kids, had a beautiful wife, and he was coming up here to run Twin Cities Marathon. He called me the morning of the marathon to talk about him getting here and when I would meet them and see them. That afternoon, he went out to test his car because he had put four new tires on it. At the very moment he was testing his car, two guys were drag racing who were doped on heroin, cocaine, and alcohol, T-boned Grant, and killed him instantly. And so if we think about why do these things happen, well, I'll tell you why. Grant was an amazing man, and they ended up having a race. This was the last year of that race. It went on for, I believe, 18 years, which provided scholarships for Christian athletes to go to college. But what was really interesting is the young man that went to Grant's funeral only because he knew Grant's mom. And I want to read you just the, kind of the concluding statement in, in his letter. I certainly know that it doesn't make any of the pain go away, but just know that Grant's passing wasn't in vain. If there's anything I can ever do, please let me know. But here, the thing is, is that in a time that might be hard to find the good, if it's any consolation, Grant's death saved my life. This is a letter to Grant's mom, or to Grant's wife on how he came to know Jesus Christ after the funeral of Grant. I spoke at Grant's funeral. There was over 1,500 people there. If Grant knew that his death would save one kid, he would do it a million times over. 
So sometimes we want answers and they're not always there. Sometimes we get into the clouds, which may be our winter, and we can't see through them. But we have opportunities to move on, but it's us that has to make the decision. And you have an amazing opportunity with Jesus Christ as a part of your life. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. Then God said, let the waters teem with the swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. We have to get ourselves out of the clouds. That's our responsibility. That's our adversity. It is our responsibility to overcome that. I shall lift up my eyes to the mountains from whence my, shall my help come. My hope always comes from Jesus Christ. I can't depend on people for that help. Seasons of life. Closure isn't always possible. I will never have closure on my mom's death. Okay? Let that register. However, it doesn't mean I haven't resolved it. Closure involves finality. Resolve involves resolution of understanding that we may never know the wise. If the wise overtake our life, we're denied so much in life. Resolve involves an understanding that all of life's events pre present an opportunity for growth. Life's events shape us, but they don't determine who we become. What happens when there's no resolve? A life of anger, bitterness, blame, relational issues, depression. We've already talked about depression and the manifestations of it. Future generations of anger and lack of ownership or outcomes. Lack of personal responsibility. Remember the fall in love? You don't want to be insignificant because you haven't overcome things that have prevented you from loving. And in my own family, my younger sisters that were in that house that didn't wake up, one of them made her daughter sick for attention, Manchalism by proxy. She also is divorced. She is angry at the world. She was arrested for embezzlement. The difference of overcoming adversity that I have faced is simply a relationship with Jesus Christ and continued growth in that relationship. I have another sister, married to a drunk, has enabled him to be a drunk. Their lives are spent in the bar. And yet, if you look at this middle picture, it's my daughter and a good friend. And on the picture on the far right is the daughter of my mom's best friend who committed to praying for us kids over a lifetime. Effects of resolve, hope, peace, joys, forgiveness, purpose in life, living life intentionally, investment in relationships, meaningful relationships, the difference between closure and resolve. Everyone's looking for closure like it's a Disney ending. It's not a Disney ending. Just because movies in that way doesn't mean that's how life is. If you're looking for the perfect ending, you're looking for the resolve that I got with my knee injury, which doesn't happen very often. The only resolve comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Closure isn't always possible. And I want to tell you the results of resolve. If I don't have resolve with what happened to my mom, what happened to me, what happened to my dad, I bring that into my life and it ruins relationships. But here's the opposite of that. Married for 27 years, to the love of my life. Met him later in life. I wasn't bitter about being single into my 30s at all. I was living life for Jesus Christ. God happened to place this man on a mountain at Snowmass where we met, doing the things we loved. 
skiing in Colorado. I am blessed to have beautiful children, children that love Jesus Christ and are giving back to others. I've had the opportunity to work with my son's string quartet, Mike and the Apostles, Matthew, Mark, Michael, and Peter. Okay? So again, amazing opportunities for me in allowing my sons to work, or myself to work with my son and his friends. My kids have had amazing opportunities. My daughter is going into service. She is in the military. She wants to be in um, intelligence or a diplomat. She is giving back. God has strengthened our relationships through my kids. We have done fun things as a family. Can you imagine the angst that my sister had that was making her daughter sick for attention? Instead, we live, we live life. We love family. We love family outings. We love doing all the things that we could together, and we love laughter. Remember, laughter is one of the things that helps us overcome adversity. My kids let me train them, those of you that have been trained by me. That's your worst nightmare, to have a mother that will physically train you. My kids allowed me to do that. I can't even believe they allowed me to do that. One of my, my daughter in one workout was puking on the track. I just simply said, get up. It's easier to puke when you're walking. Okay? And then we immediately got her into another interval. She's tougher than nails. I probably should be reported for child abuse of some kind. But, <laughs> but then you look at my daughter and I laughing in this picture. We love life. My kids have had incredible opportunities like I have through athletics, academics, and music. I love the fact that my two kids are best friends. If I had lived an undertow of stress and anger, I would have passed this on to the next generation. My son's birthday was Monday, and Sarah FaceTimed in. We were with my son's best friend, and it was just laughter the whole time Sarah was on FaceTime. I wouldn't trade that for anything. I wouldn't tra trade having a family that has a lot of love, a lot of joy together. So let's just recap. My mom's death led me, I lied to do what was right. Home life was tough, the fault of no one for me, resulted in me pushing hard in academic sports and music. I earned a music scholarship. I couldn't play on the collegiate volleyball team, which I know is laughable at this point, but at that day I had a chance. I started running. I severely sprained my ankle where I met an athletic trainer. I won a 10K at an Iowa championship that got me a scholarship. On the ride home, I questioned my winning and success. I called the athletic trainer. She shared Christ with me. My junior year qualified for that championship, signed a track scholarship, went out for a run, was hit by a car on the run. The doctor assigned to me wasn't the team doctor. They wanted me moved from that hospital. But fortunately, I wasn't moved. And that family became an adopted family for me to enhance all of my strengths in everything I did. Since I was injured, I decided to stay home, was not in that accident. And then when the Pose, the orthopedic, they basically adopted me. They also went and paid for my entire master's degree. I went to go pay my bill, and it had already been paid. So if you pay attention, the pieces of the puzzle may fall into place or you may try and force them into place. If you believe God has all the pieces, then don't fret about the missing piece, the missing link. When I wrote that editorial this past year, the person who led me to Christ, I 
had a much longer version on Facebook, and this was her response. Praying for you today, friends. So thankful that our Lord called you out specifically in your family. I believe the enemy looked at you as a child and said he wanted you on the day your mom died. He was trying to take away your future, in essence, to destroy you. But your heavenly father said empathetically, no. And I believe God declared this one is mine. I believe he reminded the devil about the angel's declaration to the shepherds. For today in Bethlehem, a rescuer was born for you. That rescuer came to you in college, and his spirit lives on and shines from you each day. So I declare with the angel that today is a date of rescue. Today you know in part, but one day you will be revealed. Your mom and dad already live in that future glory with complete peace. They are cheering you on. Keep fighting the good fight. So out of this comes, I'm actually writing a book, hoping to have it completed in July. And the name of the book is called The Greatest Gift of All, Resolve. And I want you to briefly listen to this one-minute segment of a composition my son wrote. My son is an amazing composer and musician. When he wrote this in college, this is when this book came to mind to me, that without my resolve, my son never hears the music. is he never hears the music if I don't have resolve so in summary Ecclesiastes the seasons of life I'm not going to read it but go to it and just see it that God puts us through seasons of life so what season are you in what season are you in and with each season God has a verse for us to rely on I am here today with a PhD in music or PhD in exercise science with a family that I couldn't love more than anything else in the world because God gave me resolve and the only re reason that resolve came to me is because I made a decision to have him come into my life and guide me through everything that I do thank you